This morning on this Palm Sunday, we will look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you have not been with us, we've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ going through the gospel according to Luke. Have you had anyone in your life ever tell you that they are going to die? I've been given three weeks. I've been given maybe a year. They don't know if I'll make it through the week. If you experienced that, that moment was probably quite shocking. Maybe floored you. You didn't know what to say. To think about the emotions that flooded your heart and your mind. What questions even came? Why? How? What? How do they know for sure? What a difficult moment it is in anyone's life to go through that. To hear a loved one, a close friend, someone you care about tell you that their life is ending. There's always great emotion when we talk about death. There's always great movement of emotion in our heart when someone close to us is dying or has died. And today we look at a text in which Jesus tells his disciples, three, this is the third time in his life with them, where he says, I'm going to die. <clears throat> and I wonder what type of emotions for him, as well as for the disciples, what type of questions were not asked, what type of questions came to their minds, to even for us today ask the question, why did Jesus die? What did his death accomplish? And these questions and more, we can have an answer to. And it's in the word of God. Therefore, the big idea this morning is this. The word of God is all about Jesus Christ and his work to save his people from sin. You read from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21, and you will see that every single page is about Jesus Christ. Every book of the Bible points to Jesus Christ, and therefore that is why we devote our time to the Word of God and not to self-help books or psychology books when we gather. We gather to read the truth of God so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man in the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The word of God. It's a wonderful blessing to open and to read the words that come from the very mouth of our Savior Jesus. And to think that this moment with his disciples is quite an emotional one. And if you have not read through the gospel accounts, this is the third time he's told them this will happen. Specifically saying, we will go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will die, 
and he will rise again. So let's look at the text here in verse 31. Jesus says that all that is said about the Son of Man in the prophets in the Old Testament that was that these things were spoken of will be accomplished. But to know that all that Christ did was foretold about by the prophets. So he has the 12 with him. They're traveling They're to this point. He set his face to Jerusalem and he says, we're going to Jerusalem. We're heading that way. We know that this is the time that is coming close to the Passover when people would gather in Jerusalem to remember what God had done to set his people free from slavery to Egypt. And I've been praying this week that you and I would see when we read the words of Christ that the plan for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, all the things that were prophesied about them are clear that this is a sovereign plan of God, that God the Father set out this plan before the foundations of the earth to send his son on a mission to save his people from their sins. And we ask, well, how do we know these things? If you have not devoted time to reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament is filled with hundreds of prophecies in which God the Father tells these men of God to speak forth his truth about his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we see Jesus fulfill them. A few months ago, we celebrated the birth of Christ. We looked at some prophecies then, one of them being Micah said, hey, the Messiah will be born in the city of Bethlehem. And we spent some time there seeing how Jesus Christ was born in the city of Bethlehem. We also saw a prophecy by Isaiah that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, something that is humanly impossible without a work of God. And we saw that in the birth of Christ, that Mary, that she was obedient to the Lord. And the angel came and told her, you're going to have a son and it's the son of God. And she's like, it's not possible. And he said, it's possible. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive. Therefore, just a couple of prophecies that were given that were fulfilled by Jesus. But do you see the term there that Jesus uses there in here in verse 31? He says, everything that's written about who? What's the title there? The son of who? The son of man. Now, Jesus used that term. And in the gospel accounts, it's used about 80 times to refer to Jesus. And we find that term from Daniel chapter seven. And in Daniel chapter seven, it helps us understand that the son of man refers to Jesus Christ, the son of God in his humanity and in his humility. But also the term son of man, when Jesus uses it, also refers to his everlasting glory, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Turn to Acts chapter two. Jesus says in the text here, everything that's written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Well, if you go to Acts chapter 2, after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, you have the first sermon that's ever preached, the first declaration of the gospel to the people, and it's by Peter, one of the disciples, a follower, an apostle, and it says in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In the first sermon that's preached, it's declared that these things that were prophesied, that they were fulfilled by Jesus because it was according to the plan that God had set out before time and God raised up the son. And what we just read there in Acts is what specifically Jesus tells his disciples will happen when they go to Jerusalem. And as this week is a reflection on the thought that Jesus is fully God and he's also fully man. As we read in Hebrews that he has experienced the same feelings that we have felt. What were the feelings that Jesus felt in those moments? Jesus not only knew the Old Testament prophecies and what he would fulfill, but also being God. He knew what was ahead in Jerusalem. He knew that he would die a horrific, terrible, torturous death. He knew what he would experience on the cross. And he knew that it was set before him. If you read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and if you read in Luke, chapter 22, where we will be not too long from now, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest. And he's there with his disciples and he tells the disciples, would you stay awake with me and just pray? And as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the impact, the reality The truth that he was going to face the full cup of wrath from the Father at the cross led him to a point of agony in that the sweat that came from his forehead turned into drops of blood. And God sent an angel to comfort him. But Jesus fully knew what was ahead of him in Jerusalem. Another prophecy in the book of Zechariah points us to today in the sense of Palm Sunday. In Zechariah chapter 9, it says that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 35. They go and get this donkey. Jesus told them to go and do this. And it says in verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. To picture that day where Jesus enters Jerusalem in which we're looking today. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. The day that he enters in, the crowds and the masses that came out and that came with him into Jerusalem were so great that the Pharisees in the Gospel of John said, the whole world has gone after him. And they hailed him king. And he knew that that was what would take place. But at the same time, he knew that within a few short days following that entry into Jerusalem... He would be crucified and he would be mocked and he would experience 
something that's hard for us to comprehend. But Jesus says, all that is said about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So look at verses 32 through 33. Jesus, everything that's said about him is fulfilled in his life. It's fulfilled by Jesus. And here's where he gets specific and says, not only what we have from the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus says to his disciples, this, 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 this is going to happen when we go to Jerusalem. If you have not read through the gospel accounts, when Jesus is arrested, one of his own, a close follower, one of his disciples, a man named Judas, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I believe it's the gospel of John that tells us that Satan literally entered Judas, possessed Judas, and Judas went out and he betrayed Jesus Christ, who was then arrested. And it says in verse 32 of the text today, Jesus says, for he, speaking of the Son of Man himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, that he would be given into the hands of another, meaning his arrest. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show that Jesus went through two trials. He was arrested, and he went through these trials throughout the night and the early morning. And first, he, when he was arrested, the Jewish religious leaders, they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they had this illegal trial at nighttime. And he was accused. He was interrogated. There was an official charge and a sentencing. But then, as Jesus said he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, the religious leaders had to take him to the Roman government leaders. And so they bring him to a man named Pontius Pilate, a governor of Judea. And it's there he goes through another trial, but fulfilling what he said would happen. But not only would he be handed over to these Gentiles, but verse 32, do you see what it says? That he will be what? What's it say? He will be mocked. You ever been mocked before? Everyone ever made fun of you? Anyone ever tried to humiliate you? For some of you, you go back to your elementary days and your high school days and they're very painful because you know and remember those moments of being mocked. I don't know. I don't know about you, but man, junior high kids can be so ruthless in their words. I can still to this day remember junior high and high school students that I went to school with and words that ring in your mind when they try to mock you and they try to humiliate you and they cause lots of pain. Jesus says this would happen to the Son of Man, but on a scale that none of us have ever experienced before. Psalm chapter 22 prophesies and says in verse 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This mocking of Christ is fulfilled. And you read in Matthew, you read in Mark, and you read in John. One of, the, one of the groups that mocked him was a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. It says they called in the whole battalion, which would have been about 600 men. And 600 men gathered around Jesus, and they put a purple robe on him that you would have for a king with those colors. They wove together a crown of thorns. They placed it upon his head. They took a staff and they smashed it into his head and there they knelt down 
and they mocked him. And they said, Hail, King. That was from the Gentiles. The leaders of the nation of Israel, the chief priests, they mocked him. And it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So not only the soldiers mock him and they beat him and they put the crown of thorns on him, but you also have the religious leaders who mock him and say, hey, you said that you could save us. Well, then save yourself. And not only that, there's a criminal on his right and his left that are crucified with him. They're hanging there. They are going to their death and they are also mocking and reviling Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on in Luke 18, verse 32. Not only the mocking happens, but he says, the Son of Man will be shamefully treated and spit upon. You ever had someone spit in your face? You ever had someone spit on you? It's disgusting. It's repulsive. It's quite sickening. For the nation of Israel, for the Jews, it's one of the most hateful, personal insults that you could give to a person would be to spit on them. And not only do we have accounts of the religious leaders, but you have soldiers. Multiple times the gospel accounts in this time when he was arrested, leading from his arrest to his death, he was spit upon and he was treated shamefully. But do you know that this was prophesied? It said that this would happen. Jesus fulfilled these things that were spoken of him. The people that interacted and they arrested him and they did these things. It was told of hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. They treated him shamefully, punching him, slapping him in the face, and spitting upon him. The Son of God, the Savior. One account of the fulfillment of this is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. It says in verse 67 and 68, Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I mean, just stop for a minute. If we just stopped at this point of what Christ went through, it's horrible. Shamefully treated. Disgraced. Mocked. Arrested. Tried, found guilty, and he was innocent. You think, wow, just can't understand this. This is enough. But Jesus goes on, and if you see in the text in Luke 18, verse 33, he says, and after 
flogging him. John chapter 19 verse 1 said this was fulfilled. They flogged Jesus. Scourging was a brutality. It was cruel and it was horrible. A person would be stripped naked. They would be tied to a post and they would be beaten, whipped repeatedly by soldiers. Most of the time, they had a small wooden handle with strips of leather, and at the ends of that were pieces of bone or metal balls. And as they repeatedly whipped the back of the person, it not only tenderized the skin, but the hooks would tear in and rip the flesh off in ribbons to the point that you would see the muscles for some, that you could possibly see bones exposed, and most or many died from the blood loss alone. Jesus said the Son of Man would be flogged, and you read he was flogged. He was whipped repeatedly. But he did not die from that. Verse 33 says that the Son of Man, it says they will kill him. Psalm 22, verse 14, again, describes this death of the Messiah. In Psalm 22, it says that the bones are out of joint, that his hands and his feet are pierced, and it's a description of crucifixion, something that was created 500 years before Jesus was born by the Persians. But history's account says that the Romans were the ones who took crucifixion and this torture and turned it into an art I mean, that's a horrible statement, but they truly did that. It was a slow, torturous death for many. Some they would try to humiliate before they were nailed to the cross. And Jesus was one of them when he was forced to carry the cross beam of the cross. Sometimes they could have weighed up to 200 pounds. And so Jesus was trying to carry it. And we know from the gospel accounts that he could not carry it. And another man was brought in to help carry it to the place of crucifixion. But there, wherever crucifixion happened, people were nailed by their wrists and their feet. Some of the most sensitive parts of their body. And they were nailed to the cross and left there to die. But yet the Romans would torture people and sometimes keep them alive for hours or days, suffering exhaustion, suffering dehydration, suffering fever, attacked by animals, and eventually suffocation and death. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. says in verse 16 so he delivered him over to them to be crucified so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha there they crucified him and with him two others one on either side and Jesus between them Isaiah said and prophesied that he would die. He would be crucified between criminals. 
And when you read Mark, Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and Luke 23, there was a criminal on his right and his left. And so he died as a criminal would die. In Luke chapter 23, speaks of this death. Luke chapter 23. As Jesus has been hanging on the cross for a number of hours, in verse 44 it says, It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed, his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Jesus said that the Son of Man would go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the Gentiles, and that he would be mocked, that he would be shamefully treated, that he would be spit upon, that they would flog him, and that they would kill him there on the cross. But he also speaks of hope. Do you see it in verse 33? And on the third day, he will what? He will rise. And it's okay to be excited about that every day and not just Easter Sunday. On the third day, he will rise. Psalm 16, again, a number of many prophecies of what Christ would fulfill. It says in verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Next Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, uh, the world calls Easter Sunday, we will gather and we'll celebrate and draw our focus on the resurrection and the power of Christ, His triumph over death to life, and we'll celebrate that. And it's something we celebrate every day if we're a follower of Christ. But it's important to know when we would see Luke 18 that Jesus, He knowingly and willingly went to Jerusalem to die a terrible, horrible death on the cross. And he did it for the glorious purpose of fulfilling the Father's plan set out before the foundations of the world to save his people from their sin. And I ask you the question that I see rising out of verse 34. Do you understand? Do you understand this? Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Three times in his life with the disciples, he told them this same thing. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die and rise again. And each time there was different responses. The first time Peter rebukes Jesus, says, no way, Jesus, this is not going to happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. The second time, uh, it, it says that they told him, and Matthew says that they were greatly distressed when he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. This third time now, Luke says they don't understand. They cannot understand how 
the Messiah, who they believe that he is, his death, how this fits into the Messiah coming to rule and reign. They, does, they can't make sense of this. It's also amazing to me. I mean, again, it's a fulfillment of God's plan. But turn to Acts chapter 13. The religious leaders who arrested Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they, they, for three years they go after Jesus. They're attacking Jesus. And these are the guys who are the religious leaders. They're the pastors of the nation of Israel. They know the word of God, the Old Testament. They know the prophecies better than the people do. They've got them memorized, and yet they do not understand. They do not see. Their eyes, their ears, their hearts, their minds are not understanding that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And therefore, they find him guilty even though he was innocent and they send him to Pilate and say, we want him crucified. And so in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 26, it says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. <clears throat> I constantly and regularly pray that you and I would have understanding of the word of God. Because I do not believe that 100% of everyone who ever attends church every Sunday or so many Sundays of year, uh, the year or read the Bible every single day always understand it or always get it. Because I've seen lives of people that were in church for years and late in life. I mean, they could answer the best Bible quiz. And yet late in life, they declare, I have not been saved. I did not believe the gospel. And today I'm saved. And what are the rest of the church going to think? And so I never believe that 100% of any room or any place I preach is saved. Or if you've been in church forever, that you understand the gospel. This is what he's saying in Acts 13. Even the religious experts who read the prophets, the Old Testament every single week did not see Jesus as Messiah. And therefore they fulfilled the prophets and they killed him. So do you understand? Do you understand why Jesus had to die because your understanding of Jesus' death affects your eternity in life or death. The cross, when you see the symbol of the cross, when you think of what Jesus Christ did, it affects your eternity, what you believe or understand about it. They didn't understand at that time. Later, the disciples did. But the cross helps us understand the problem of sin and that every single one of us, every single person that's been born into this world is born with a sin nature. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only God is holy and we are not. 
And what we read in Scripture is the punishment for sin is what? It's death. And it's eternal death. And someone to save anyone from their sins before a holy God would have to come and make amends. You cannot make amends for anything you've done to break God's law. I don't care how good, moral, all the great things you've ever done. If you've gone on mission trips, you've done these things, you've given to this charity or that. None of those things can ever make amends before a holy God for the sin that you've committed against him. The sin nature you, you were born with. In theology, there's this big, huge term called penal substitutionary atonement. And all that means to sum up is that Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, died in the place to bear the sins for the people of God. Jesus was the atonement for the sin that we committed Just as in the Old Testament, as they slaughtered an animal and put it on this place to sacrifice an animal, that's the picture of the cross. Jesus was killed at the cross. Jesus gave up his life at the cross. And there where he shed his blood, he atoned for the sins of the people of God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, I would encourage you this week, being Holy Week, to read through Isaiah chapter 53. Also, some other reading material that we've made available if you go to our website today and go to a section on Holy Week at the bottom. There are some downloads of some reflections from Scripture, a reading plan that you can go through this week as we look at the life of Christ and what he experienced in this Holy Week, as we title it. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All these things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. First John in chapter four tells us that Christ's death, it uses this word that it's a that his death was a propitiatory sacrifice. Again, all these big words, what do they mean? It means that Jesus' death on the cross and his blood that was shed appeased and satisfied God the Father's wrath that was meant for you and for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. His blood was shed to atone for you so that you, by faith in the work of Christ, could be saved, could be set free from the shackles of slavery to sin, and you could be made righteous and holy because Jesus gives you his righteousness, and God the Father looks down on you and says, that's my son, that's my daughter, I've adopted them as my own. A wonderful, glorious work of grace. That's why we gather. Amen. 
So the question I put at the end here of my notes this week was, why? Why did he do this? Why would Jesus go through all this? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us his motivation was not only being obedient to the Father, but his motivation was to show us his grace. That we would see the cross and we would understand the love of God. That we would see the cross and we would understand that we could be forgiven and set free and made new. And we'd see the empty tomb and know that we can have eternal life. As the worship team comes up here, I read through a number of the gospel accounts this week of Christ's death. And again, why, Jesus, would you do this? Simply because of his love and his grace. Because he is our Lord. He is our Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. He's Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ today, praise God. If you're a Christian, you should have the joy and the hope that one day you will be in the presence face to face with Jesus forever. It's better than the streets of gold. It's better than a new heavens and earth. It's being with Jesus, your Savior. And so if you're a Christian today, as you reflect on what Christ did when he went to Jerusalem, you should also not only be grateful and thankful for his forgiveness and what he did, but you should be reminded of the hope that he's not dead and that he's alive. And you have so much now in the inheritance in heaven. And Jesus Christ, who called you, who is a Christian, that he had not only died for you, atoned for your sins, but he says, follow me and be a servant as I was serving you. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And I would say this, church, Christians, we've been looking at today where Jesus says, all that was said in the word of God would be fulfilled in his life. Therefore, you need to be in the Word of God. One hour reading God's Word is more valuable than thousands of hours in any other book that's been written by man. Some are drawn to just spend all their time studying other things about the Bible and about Jesus outside of the Word of God, and they neglect the truth of God. I would tell you this, if you're going to read the Word of God, spend time in the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, and anything outside of that, this should still rise above the amount of time that you reflect and read, because this is the truth of God, not man's books. Now, yes, we can read books written by man, by godly people who declare the truth. But it doesn't rise to the value of God's word. And if you're not a follower of Christ. Today I would beg you. To look to the cross. And know that Jesus says that. He who believes in me will have faith. Will have eternal life. Father I ask that in this moment. That you would be working upon our hearts. I would ask, Lord, that in this moment that you would do a powerful work, a saving work for those who are far from you.
Would you show them the truth of the cross, the work that you did to save them? And Father, for the Christians that are here, the believers, would you remind them of your sacrifice? Would you remind them of your work? And would you give them a reminder of the hope that they have in you? We glorify you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.